We're going through two verses, uh, verses one and two. Really going to make a lot of progress today. But we felt like it was important to give you some context. Um, like any letter, it's important to know um, what the situation is of the letter writer and the situation of the person that they're um, writing to. Um, and so we're going to spend a lot of time just uh, setting context today, and hopefully it'll lay a, a solid foundation by God's grace for the next um, 20 sermons through the book of Philippians. Uh, the, this book is about encouragement to press on, encouraged to press on. That Paul, um, unlike some of the other letters that he's written, that he's really had to uh, beat the sheep, so to speak, because of uh, disobedience and sin uh, creeping in. But the church in Philippi was a model church in many ways. And uh, Paul uh, is going to bring them encouragement to, uh, to press on, to continue, to continue in your progress um, towards the finish line, if you will. You know, and it's made me ponder a little bit about the way um, I'm wired and the way that I operate in the flesh sometimes is that um, I'm very much a goal setter. I'm very much a strategy kind of guy. Yes, I'm that guy that has a five-year plan, and every um, December I'm dragging my wife to some hotel somewhere and making sure that she understands what the plan is. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't always work well. Um, I wouldn't advise it. But, but, I, but I'm, a, I'm a man with a plan, and oftentimes I celebrate the plan an implementation of the plan more than I celebrate the purpose. Like even in, in um, saving money, for example, um, we can save money just for the sake of having money rather than having a, a goal. And, and we lose sight of what the goal is. And um, in this church right now, if you're, uh, many of you know this, if you're new, um, God's allowed us to buy the units to the north. Um, and so we're going to expand um, uh, about 1,400 square feet for a new nursery and waddler. And we can celebrate that, and we should celebrate that, that God has been very kind in the way that he's provided the money for us to buy that. But the, at but the end of the day, the end isn't to have a nursery and waddler. Uh, the, the end is to, um, to have a space where, people, where more people can come. Let me rephrase that. We're not building it so more people can come. We've built it because more people have come, and we want to accommodate what the Lord is already doing. So, so in, in my flesh, I can press on and press on, and let's do this, and let's do that. Let's multiply community groups. Let's start new ministries. But if we're not set on what the end is, what the goal is, and that is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, then we're just putting goals in play for the sake of, of false, uh, false motives. And for me, it's really easy to fall asleep. I might start out with good motives. I might start out with uh, my identities in the right place. But very quickly, I can go to a place of, of uh, feeling like I'm in competition with the other churches. Um, I can feel like it's something that, you know, that maybe the, the pastors did a little bit that we're doing right. Um, or when the, the opposite, when things aren't going well here, we can feel like, well, maybe something the pastors are doing wrong. And, and certainly there can be some truth in that. But at the end of the day, God is working. God is working in this church. He's working in every nook and cranny of the world. And my prayer for you today is that, um, that you would be motivated, that you'd be um, reminded of God's love for you and that you are a saint united in Christ and that you have a very unique purpose in this world. And that is to um, live out your calling, your, your, your set-apart calling as God's son or daughter and to bring other people into the kingdom by His grace. Um, so I'm going to start today by beginning with um, the background of this book. Like, how did Paul, Paul's writing a letter, who, how does he even know the Philippians? I mean, you don't write a letter to people you don't know. You know something about them. So it's a very, um, it's a very um, encouraging, um, loving letter to a group of people that he obviously has a relationship with. 
Paul is a Roman who is of Jewish faith. He had an excellent education. He's got a very high pedigree. He was on the the trail for worldly success in many ways. And he was also a persecutor of the followers of the risen Christ. Paul was radically converted on on that road. He To the Christian faith, he spent the rest of his life after being converted, testifying to the risen Lord and to his Savior, Jesus Christ. He was known to have gone on three missionary journeys over 20 years. Um, And he is, um, when he encountered the Philippians, he was on his second missionary journey. It's when he stumbled into this city called Philippi, which was his first church plant in Europe. In Acts chapter 16, we see... um, Luke, who wrote Acts, describing these circumstances of Paul stumbling into Philippi. Paul had set out to encourage, on this second missionary journey, he had set out to encourage and strengthen the churches that he established in his first missionary journey. So in his first missionary journey, he he established churches, people came to faith, churches were born, and then when he went back to his home church in Antioch, there was a council meeting in Jerusalem, and this council meeting went something like this. Should Gentiles be included in the kingdom. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ only for Jews or is it for Gentiles as well? And the council ruled, thankfully, that the gospel is for everybody. We know that. They would have been wrong if they ruled otherwise. But Paul, on the second missionary journey, he set out, he went to the churches that he established on his first missionary journey. uh, journey. He encouraged them. He strengthened them. He said, great news. You all are in, like I said you were in, because the gospel is for Gentiles as well. And as he traveled on the second missionary journey, strengthening and encouraging the churches that he established in the first missionary journey, he came through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. You don't need to know where they're at. It's just Paul's the man with the plan, and he set out to go through these two regions until the Holy Spirit forbid him to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit literally forbid him to go to Asia and speak the word. So Paul readjusted his plans, and he decided to go north to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow him to go there either. So they set sail for Macedonia, which is Europe. And when they landed in Macedonia, they sought out the kind of the the economic hub of that part of Europe, which was Philippi, in Europe there. Make no mistake about Paul. Paul is a man with a plan. Paul is a man with a plan, and um, nobody or nothing, not prison, not beatings, not shipwrecks, nothing is going to thwart his plan, except for God. That he was a man that was so sensitive to the Spirit of God that he allowed God to redirect him, not once, not twice, but three times. When the Spirit said, go, Paul went. When the Spirit said, stop, Paul stopped. And when the Lord redirected him, he went in a new direction. You would never see Paul asking God to bless his plans. We see that a lot in the church today where a church or a family comes up with this plan and says, God, would you bless this plan? Rather than planning in the spirit and making sure that the plan from the very beginning was the Lord's, and if you find out that the Lord wasn't in it for the long term, you let the Lord redirect you. But Paul never asked the Lord to bless his plans. He was a man that probably, uh, Proverbs 16.9 was his his, um, favorite verse, I would guess. That's just me guessing. He probably had thousands of favorite verses. Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's good to make plans, but it's good also to let the Lord redirect those plans as he sees fit. 
What a great plan God had for Paul in Philippi. Not only would the gospel sprout new life, but Paul would find lifelong friends and ministry partners. Have you ever been in a town for six months, nine months, a year, maybe two years, and here you are 10, 20 years later, and those are some of your favorite people on the entire planet? That's how it was with Paul. Um, we had some friends, uh, uh, Jim and Michelle Doyle, who lived in Fort Collins for six to nine months. And when we look back on, on their friendship, I mean, we still keep in touch with them. It felt like they were around for 10 years, but we, we just developed just a, uh, such a heart bond with them. And Paul loves all the cities where he planted churches, but there's something special about the church in Philippi. When Paul goes into a city on any of his missionary journeys, what does he do first? Where's the first place he goes? He goes and gets a case of bottled water, right? Because you can't drink the water there. He, he goes into the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue because um, he, even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, he goes into a synagogue because there are Jewish people there that are waiting and looking for the Messiah. It's low-hanging fruit. So he pulls into Philippi, looks for a synagogue, and there's no synagogue. And what we know from, from, um, from Jewish literature is that the requirement for a synagogue then is that there be a minimum of 10 Jewish men. So there were, there were either none or less than 10 Jewish men in Philippi. So on the Sabbath, while in Philippi, Paul and his, and his team went outside the city gates looking for a place to pray. And they ran into some God-fearing women. They ran into some ladies who were gathered there to pray. Why is it always women praying? Somebody asked me that at the second service. I didn't say it at the first, but it's true. Like, wherever you go, it's like women are gathering and praying, gathering and praying. You know, and, I mean, the guys are, they're working. They're watching the chariot races. Gambling on the chariot races. So, no Jewish people on the Sabbath. Here's, here's the account of what happened outside the city gates when Paul encountered these women who were gathered to pray. Acts 16, verses 13 through 15. And on that Sabbath day, he went outside the gate to the riverside, where he supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. And when you're a seller of purple goods, that's, it's a seller of, of expensive fabric. And it was wealthy people who bought it. She was a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She, she convinced Paul and his team to go to her house. Boom, there it is. Paul had a plan. He's, he's headed north towards Bithynia, and the Lord takes him over to Europe. And lo and behold, the Lord is already working. The Lord is so far ahead of him. Paul had a plan, and God had a better plan. In God's providence, while they were looking for a place to spend the Sabbath in a town that had no synagogue, God saves Lydia and her entire household. And then on the way to Lydia, they encounter this um, servant girl that's owned by these slave masters. She's a slave, and she is possessed by a demon of divination. Where this girl is uh, fortune-telling for her masters, and her masters are selling her fortune-telling. And then Paul, through some circumstances, gets ticked off, and he casts the demon out of her. 
At that moment, the superfluous entrepreneurs lost their business and their source of money. So they got ticked off. They turned Paul over to the magistrates. This was a Roman colony. Turned them over to, to the Romans. And, and in Rome, um, if, you, um, if you worship anybody besides Caesar, Caesar is Lord and Savior. If you worship anybody besides Caesar, that's grand treason. So they, they turned them into the Roman officials and said that this is a uh, God worshiper. This is a worshiper that doesn't worship um, Caesar. And they put them in prison. They beat them. They threw them in prison, put their feet in stocks, fastened them, locked them. But you know something about Paul? In prison, he has the same message as he has outside of prison. That being in prison is nothing to Paul. His circumstances changing is nothing to Paul. That he had one mission, and that was to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me read the account of this in Acts 16, 25-34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds on their feet, their shackles were unfastened. And one thing you got to know about that, the, the jail guard in that culture, if they let the prisoners get away, they're dead men. They, they don't survive that. Um, the the, the higher-ups will kill you. So when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do I long to hear those words? What must I do to be saved? And they said, simply, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he baptized them at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Paul stumbled into the city of Philippi. Didn't expect much. There's no synagogue. We got to go out and worship on the Sabbath. So he went outside the city gates. But the Lord was way ahead of him and is already working in a, in a secular, pre-Christian culture. And we live, I would submit to you, in a secular, a growing secular culture. And we're not pre-Christian by any means, but we're a post-Christian culture already. Make no mistake about it. That living in the United States of America, that we have gone from, we are now a post-Christian culture, where the gospel is becoming... Um, there's a lot, a lot of things coming down the pike that are, going to, um, that are going to want to inhibit our proclamation of the gospel, but it's not going to stop us. All Paul did was to be faithful in going where the Lord led and opening his mouth to speak the word when the Lord said, speak. And you know what? His God is the same God. His God then is the same God we have today. The God that saved Lydia, the God that saved the prisoner is the same God that is working today to save people through our proclamation. In Philippi, uh, Paul left behind two uh, notable converts, Lydia and the jailer. I don't know what happened to the poor little girl that the demon was cast out of her. Maybe she came to Christ. But we know that Lydia did. We know that the jailer did. In each of these two, Lydia and the jailer had their lives touched by Jesus in very different ways. One commentator described it this way. 
Lydia was religious. The guard was not. Lydia was prospering in business. The guard was about to kill himself. Lydia's heart was gently open. The guard's heart was violently confronted. The guard had a remarkable sign, an earthquake, but all Lydia had was the move of the Holy Spirit in her heart. Both heard the gospel and believed, and through each of them, their whole families believed. You know, we don't know how long Paul was in Philippi. He might have been there a month. He might have been there a year. He could have been there a year and a half. Some commentators um, speculate on that. I don't think that's important, quite frankly. But what we do know is that he established many deep relationships. We know this as well. Paul visited Philippi again five years later on his third missionary journey. We know that, that Paul had sent other people to go check on the Philippians to see how they're doing. We also know that the, Philippi, the Philippians loved their friend and mentor, Paul. When they heard of Paul's imprisonment, they sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus with a financial gift. We know that in Philippians 4.14. So this letter to the Philippians is a letter from a friend to a friend's. Paul wrote the letter while he was in prison, most likely in Rome, about 10 years after he arrived in Philippi. So he is writing this letter to his friends, this encouraging letter to his friends, while imprisoned with execution looming yet again. Yet you know what? What's amazing is that Paul doesn't complain about his circumstances. His only concern is for the welfare of the Philippians. His concern is for their progress of faith and their progress in the joy of faith. I want you to feel the affection Paul has for the Philippians. In chapter chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God for you. Chapter 1, verse 5, um, he calls them his partners, which is really from the word koinia, that he's in fellowship with them. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, that he yearns for them. In chapter 1, verse 24, right before that he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in verse 24, he says that he wants to continue living for their benefit. That, that I can leave and it's so much better. But I want to stay for your benefit. Chapter 1, verse 15, he says I want to, he, that he wants to stay for their progress in the faith. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, he's saying, this is, you're a model church. You, everything that I've asked, everything the Lord has asked, you've done. You're an amazing church. But he, says, he says, don't stop. He says, keep pressing on. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Don't just build nurseries and waddlers and have a packed out service and think that you've arrived. Because actually that's not the end. The end is that people grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, I will send Timothy to you. I can't come, so I'll send Timothy to you so I can be cheered on by the news of you. Paul's saying that every time I hear of you, I just want to like do, just get a bunch of people to do the wave. Keep it up. In Epaphroditus, that, that the Philippians sent to Paul with the money, Paul says in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, I will send them back to you. That's actually, actually chapter 2, verse 28. I'll send them back to you so that you can rejoice in seeing him. So in this letter to the Philippians, Paul Paul utters no misgivings of their loyalty, no suspicions of false play, no reproaches of disorderly living, no warnings against serious sins. This is a unique letter. Because that's not the case in Philippians. It's not the case with Corinthians. It's not always the case with the Romans. There's something that he's trying to correct. He's not trying to correct anything here. He's pressing them on to continue in the faith. 
that progress in the faith. To the Philippians, he gives the surest pledge of confidence and avoids the slightest breath of suspicion. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Um, I had a couple people actually ask me, um, did Timothy write this? He, he describes it as if it's from Paul and Timothy. Paul writes this. We see it all through the letter. Paul wrote this with his, with, um, either had a scribe, but it was definitely his, his words. Um, it would be like this. If I was writing a letter to Joey and Nancy's sitting next to me or Nancy's with me, it's like, hey, Joey, how you doing? Mom says, hi, how you doing? She greets you, and then I would just go into my part of the letter. So Paul wrote this letter, not Timothy. We see it um, all throughout the letter. In his greeting, there's the absence of, of an appeal to his apostolic authority. Is Paul an apostle? Yes. Can he pull the apostle card? Absolutely. He does it all the time. He doesn't do it with his friends. He, he doesn't assert his apostleship. He has a prevailing tone of satisfaction. Even the individual expressions of love and praise go out throughout, throughout this letter. He describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, is probably more connected to the term slave rather than the term servant. And here's what, here's what I mean by that. This, this drives home the point that Paul is not merely a ministry volunteer, but he's in bondage to Christ. He is a slave of Christ. Jesus owns the title, the deed to his life. That his life is not his own. We see it all throughout the, the letter to the Philippians. That his life is not his own. In the second half of this verse, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. Paul addresses to all the saints, and all is important. Uh, Pat and Chris say there should be a y'all Bible. Because this is, this is not written to an individual, it's written to y'all. This is for the church. And the church is made up of individuals, but this is for the church to live out together. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Saint is one of the most widely misunderstood words in our Christian vocabulary. At some point in church history, people began to call the original apostles saints. And that's contrary to the plain meaning of the word used in the New Testament. Also in some traditions, um, people of unusual achievement are sometimes designated as saints. I, I came out of that, that culture where there's, where there's saints, saint this, saint that. Also, we look at people that have extraordinary achievements. We, we call them a saint. Oh, he's such a saint. She's such a saint. Well, we know what we mean by that. But being a saint is miraculous. And it has zero to do with how good of life we live. It has nothing to do with our character. It has nothing to do with our works. It has nothing to do with ultimately our feeding the poor or going to Nigeria. That's not what a, a, a saint is. Saint literally means holy one, set apart, consecrated, that, that God calls everyone, everybody that has been called to himself, everybody that is um, in Christ, everybody that is a new creation is a saint. Now I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, hi, saint, such and such. You're a saint. If you know Jesus Christ, you are as every much a saint as, as Francis or um, I don't know who else, Mother Teresa. I mean, those people are no more of a saint than you are. You're a saint because God made you a saint. He sets you apart as his beloved. He sets you apart as his beloved for a set purpose. 
Sainthood is not a spiritual attainment or even a recognition of such attainment. It's a state or a status in which God brings every believer, every one of us as Christians, are saints. Further, saint describes the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And you go, well, Hardy, I mean, do you really have to spend like 20 minutes on this? Like saint and in Christ and all that? It's foundational. That as a church, we don't talk about it enough. That your union, your, your union with Jesus Christ is everything. It's actually the reason why the Father will never leave you nor forsake you. It's actually the reason why the Father accepts you in the first place. It's the reason why, why uh, not, that He will never leave you nor forsake you. Being in Christ, saints in Christ. By the way, this is mentioned over 21 times in this short letter, letter, being in Christ. That's another reason that I'm talking so much about it. Being in Christ means that though their earthly address may be Philippi and our earthly address might be northern Colorado, they live in the Lord. We live in the Lord who reigns supreme over all the heaven and the earth. Their fate is bound to Christ and to others who are bound to Christ with them. Let me describe it further. Being in Christ describes the Christian's inseparable union with Jesus. Union with Christ, as I mentioned, is an overlooked doctrine, but it's so critical. The believer's union with Christ says we are bound to Jesus' death by his death and resurrected life such that his glory becomes ours. Here's what I mean by that. that if you, when we're born again, before we come to know Jesus Christ, we're operating in the old man. We have old habits, we have old thoughts, um, we, uh, we have not been regenerated, but the moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the moment that he draws us to himself, we become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And that's what it means to, be, to die with Christ. And to be resurrected with Christ is that we get to live with him in his resurrected life. Uh, flip, uh, Romans 6 does the best job of explaining this, I think. Let's take a look at Romans 6, verses 4 through 6 and verse 11. We, saints, were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. This isn't talking about water baptism. This is talking about that our lives were, are hidden with his life and death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead in the glory of the Father, in order for us to be raised from the dead, to have new life, we've got to die. That doesn't mean just die to ourselves. It means that literally die a spiritual death so that we can be raised again with Christ. Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, that we, might, we too might walk in newness of life. Excuse me. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And this isn't talking solely about a future resurrection from the dead. It's talking about a resurrection from our old life, here and now. We know that our old self, verse 6, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're alive because he's alive. Paul is saying that you and I are so thoroughly bound in Christ that our sinful selves died in his death. And we live in freedom through his resurrection. Does it mean that we're, not, that we're going to stop sinning? No, it doesn't. Hopefully progressively we'll stop sinning. But it means that we're so bound to Jesus Christ that were accepted by the Father in spite of our flaws and our sins in this life. Brian Chappell in PLI, I 
I thought his name was Brian Chappelle, and the PLI guys laughed at me. Brian Chappell. I'm going to go with Chappelle. It sounds like he's more theological. He describes our union with Christ this way. He says, I gain the benefits of his being, Jesus' being, of his reputation, of his standing with God, and the credit for his righteousness. Because Christ lives in me, I, who is a dead part from him, live. His life is mine. I do not and should not claim to be God, but he grants me the privilege of his son's status by virtue of my union with Christ. His righteousness is mine because of Christ's life in me. He supplies my identity because God has made him my life. Charles Spurgeon has a quote. He says this, he says, Beloved brethren and sisters in Christ, I think that you and I can say that to us, the surest fact in all the world that there is a God is that I live in him. Then he gives an illustration. Tell a fish in the sea that there's no water. That we live in Christ and we survive in Christ and that we thrive in Christ the same way that a fish thrives in water. Then he goes on to say, no God? Tell a man who is breathing that there's no air. That in Christ he's our very life. I love what Johnny Erickson taught us said about this. Love this lady. She says, busy Christians in an iPhone age can look at Christ as though he were the battery charger and we are the smartphone. We plug into Jesus during a quiet time or community group or Sunday morning or whatever, and then we go out and live on that energy until the spiritual batteries run dry. And this isn't to say that quiet time or community group or the Sunday gathering is bad. It's saying that, that that's, that's, these aren't our sustenance. He is our sustenance. She goes on to say, but this is not a metaphor the Bible invites us to use when it speaks of our union with Christ. She goes on to say, he is the vine and we are the branches. And if you think about a branch and a vine, the branch withers and dies if it's not connected to the vine. So that's what it means to be united in Christ. Paul's constant encouragement in this practical letter will be to live out who you already are. And that's why I'm spending so much time on this. That, that if you have put your faith in Jesus, you're a saint. You're united with Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That he sees you the way that he sees Jesus. He sees Christ's righteousness in you. And this whole book is about living as you already are. Living out your identity in Christ. Continuing it. Don't rest in it. What happens in American Christianity is people make a profession of faith and they're good to go. They just await heaven for another miserable 60 years. That's not what God's called us to. The God, God's call is to, a, uh, to salvation in Christ, union in Christ, participating with Him in our own sanctification and in the sanctification of others. So Paul's constant encouragement in this practical letter will be to live out who you already are. Press on. Don't quit. Realize there's trouble on the horizon. I don't mean to say that as a downer. This church, like the church in Philippi, there's... I mean, Things are clicking on all cylinders by God's grace. Do we have pain? Is there death and suffering? There has been. But as far as the church goes, we're encouraging each other. Community groups are multiplying. By God's grace, we've got finances to expand. They needed nursery and waddler. Let's not rest in that. Let's not solely rejoice in that. Let's remind one another that we are saints in Christ. And let's pray for each other that that beautiful uh, truth, that beautiful um, indicative would spur us on to go out and tell others about this amazing God. In Philippians, there's 
two verses I want to bring to your attention this morning that are kind of theme verses that I, I feel like for the entire book. One is, as we already read at Philippians 1.25, Paul says for me to, in verse 24, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, you know, I love my life, but I know it's going to be so much better when I'm, when I'm, for me, and probably you, when I'm gone. But he goes on to say, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue for you for your progress and joy in the faith. That's another way of saying that we want to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That our goal in this body should be to help one another progress in the joy and of the faith. Not just a miserable existence leading people to Christ and it's just hard and it's ugly and it's not fun. But it's, it's, he, he died to give us life and to give it what? To the full, abundantly. The other key verse is Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, you know, he's encouraging them to press on, press on, press on. He goes, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect. I'm not, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We press forward because we already belong to Jesus. Brothers, he continues in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In this letter, you're going to feel a tension. And the tension is between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. That, that God is sovereign, God is working, and He has given us work to do, in our, even in working out our own salvation. Paul has this sense of confidence in this letter that God is working and doing the work, but there's also this constant encouragement for us and the Philippians to participate. Yes, we are His. Yes, we are saints in Christ. And therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is why Paul assures the Philippians that their salvation is as good as done, but encourages them toward the ultimate goal, now and forever, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says the, the greatest worth, the greatest jewel, the greatest thing you can ever grab a hold of is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And you might say, I know Him. I put my faith in Him. There's so much more to unpack and to know that we're to spend the rest of our lives of just unpacking and uncovering and peeling the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul cares deeply for all aspects of his friends in Philippi, but he especially is concerned for their ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that as, as pastors and leaders in this church too, um, every aspect of your life we care about. We care about, uh, we care about your, your fears. We care about your anxieties. We care about um, your loss of job or being in a miserable job. We care about your marriages being healthy. We care about your parenting. We care about your jobs. We care about all of that but we especially care about your relationship with the risen Christ. Because we know that we can fix, try to fix all this other stuff. But if you're not first believing in the risen Christ, and secondly, not rooted in who you are in the risen Christ, you're going to battle the lies of the enemy day in and day out until Jesus returns. 
The only truth as a Christian that you can hang on to, the best truth to hang on to is that you're a saint in Christ Jesus. And he loves you. You are his beloved. And we're going to finish up here. That was verse 1. In fact, we're not even done with verse 1. But we're going to, we're going to finish up here. He says, in, he says in verse 1, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's the only time that he mentions officials in his salutation. Why did he have to throw in elders and deacons? Doesn't he not know that we don't need this stuff? That's a joke. Anybody knows me. I think it's because of that. It's to remind elders and deacons that you're sheep like everybody else's sheep. That you need the body as much as they need you. That you're not exempt from any of this. Furthermore, he knows that pastors and leaders put their identity in being pastors and leaders rather than putting their identity in saints who are united in Christ Jesus. So thankful for this book. And in verse 2, I've just got a paragraph that says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can, we can just pass over that and go, you know, that's just a standard Pauline greeting. But peace and grace are more than just mere greetings. They're two of God's greatest gifts. God's grace is unmerited favor or undeserved, lavish blessings. It's what he showered upon us in Christ. And peace is being restored to a relationship with God. It comes only through Christ's self-sacrificing work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and our union in that death and resurrection. Only God can produce lasting peace. And if you're here today and you are a saint in Christ Jesus, praise be to God. If you are a saint in Christ Jesus who is lacking peace, I can tell you that the, the only way to regain that peace is to be reminded time and time again that you are a saint in Christ Jesus. And because you're united with Christ Jesus, nothing can touch you that is, be, that is outside of God's good and perfect will. That he's got you and he's working his good will and purpose out in your life. And if you're here today and you are not a saint in Christ Jesus, you're still asking, is Jesus the resurrected God? Is he the only way to the Father? And you're trying to find peace in all the wrong places, through security and retirement, through big bank accounts. Not that any of those are wrong, but if you're using those to find ultimate peace and happiness, you're going to come up with a big FUD. Not that life is perfect in Christ. It's not. We're in a perfect Christ, but it's not perfect. But there's peace in knowing that God is at work. You see, the flower of peace grows out of the root of grace. And at the moment of our salvation, we found peace with God and we became his sons and daughters. And we will experience increasing peace as we have increasing understanding of God's grace. So what's our goal, church? Our goal is to encourage one another towards the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. To stand firm in that and to go out and tell others about it. How can we keep this to ourselves? How can we know the beautiful truth of being saints in Christ Jesus? And then we have a glorious present and a more glorious future and keep that news to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your holy word that's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you, God, for the promise that your word comes down like rain and it accomplishes its goodwill and purpose. And God, I'm grateful that you led us to this, um, this 
letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm also grateful, Lord, that we're not just reading a letter. We're not just reading another letter, another story, but we're reading a letter that is inspired by the Spirit of God. We thank you that these are your words. We thank you that they are um, accurate and they are good for us, that they instruct us and remind us of who you are and who we are in you. And God, I just pray that these amazing truths would, would compel us to love you and to live for you as you loved and died for us. And God, I beg you, Lord, I beg this in my own life. I just, I'm such a chicken. I'm such a wimp. I talk a good game. But God, there's so many relationships I have with people that are perishing, that are not only not saints in Christ Jesus, but they're enemies of the cross. And I just pray that you would give me enough uh, love for them and give us love for this culture to, to open our mouths. And God, we've got freedom because we know we can't save anybody. That's your work. But we see all throughout the scriptures that you use, that you use your people proclaiming your message to bring more of your people into your kingdom. And God, if you choose to do that in a, uh, in a massive way in this community in northern Colorado, God, we'll give you all the glory. It's not about our kingdom. It's about your kingdom. And God's people say